Hey everyone, this is Connor Devine. I am your host. You are listening to episode number 38 of Money and Plants. I know I have said this before, but this is a very special episode of the podcast. It is probably out of all of the conversations I have had on Money and Plants. I think, I really think this is the most informative 30 odd minutes of conversation with a truly fantastic, wonderful medical doctor, Dr. Shireen Kassam. Dr. Kassam is a friend of mine. I have known Shireen now for a couple of years. She is a consultant haematologist and honorary senior lecturer at King's College Hospital in London. She is also the co-founder of the Plant-Based Health Online program and she is also a founding member of Plant-Based Health UK Professionals. She is an all-round fantastic doctor, really empathetic, empowering and inspiring doctor. But I think what comes across really lovely in this conversation is the humanity and the humility that Dr. Kassam shows and actually the passion, the passion that she shows in setting out all of what we really need to know about cancer. I thought about doing this podcast. I wasn't sure if I was going to do it or not because cancer is an awful disease. It's a killer disease. It's absolutely devastating for the person who succumbs to cancer and even arguably more devastating for those in the family who it leaves behind. And I would say that everybody listening to this podcast has been either directly or indirectly touched and impacted by this awful, awful illness. But what I really want to come across in this conversation is the fact that actually, if we do some things in life, if we take action in life, early in life, did you know that you can prevent so many different cancers? By changing your habits today, by changing your lifestyle, by being proactive, you can prolong your life. You can live, actually, a life cancer-free. And this is really the nub of where I wanted to get to on this conversation with Dr. Kassam. She's been working in this space for many years. She has her new book coming out on the 20th of January, which I'm going to speak about at the end. But I think what we'll do now is, let me roll the tape. It's just over 30 minutes. Get a pen and paper ready. And I'll catch up with you right after this conversation with Dr. Shireen Kassam. Dr. Shireen Kassam, how are you keeping? You're really welcome to Money and Plants. It's an absolute pleasure. Uh, I first met you, I think it was two years ago, um, and we sort of kept in touch. So how have you been keeping throughout all the madness? Yeah, I'm really well, Connor, and it's great to reconnect with you because, as you say, it's been a little while since we've um, chatted, well, either in person or uh, on Zoom, and um, it's really nice to be here. Yeah, so look, I, I suppose I've got a, an interesting demographic. Um, a lot of people sort of follow me for my sort of transformational sort of health journey. Um, and I was delighted a couple of years ago whenever you asked me to speak at the Plant-Based Health Professionals UK down in Dublin. That was really interesting. Um, but I was just wanted to ask you before we get into this, because I want to talk a little bit about cancer and uh, some of the things that we can actually do and create some awareness around all of that. But how has the Plant-Based Professionals UK group been going for you? What, why did you set that up in, initially? Yeah, so um, I suppose it's, it's 
Yeah, well, thank you for asking. So, um, as, as, as you say, um, your listeners will um, need to know that I'm um, predominantly a cancer doctor. Um, my background is in haematology, but I look after patients with lymphoma, a type of cancer of the lymphatic system. Um, and I came to plant-based nutrition through my own journey of um, adopting a vegan diet, mainly for the animals um, and the ethical reasons, um, but then coming across all this huge amount of um, knowledge and science that supports a plant-based diet for promoting health and well-being and of course for cancer prevention um, and so I was getting all my education back in 2013 from the US and some of the pioneers we're all familiar with um, and I sort of looked around um, my peer group and colleagues in the UK and there wasn't um, a big voice or, or people promoting plant-based nutrition for its health um, benefits. Um, and so I thought it was time that I spoke up and connected um, myself with other colleagues who were advocating for plant-based diet as part of a healthy lifestyle. Um, and so I formed an organization called Plant-Based Health Professionals UK, which is a community interest company that provides education and advocacy on healthy plant-based diets for all the reasons that we know it, it is good and you demonstrate it so well that you really can live and thrive well on a plant-based diet. Really good. I'm um, just a, a question I had. Obviously, uh, I, I mentioned to you previously I had Dr. Gemma Newman on um, just before this episode, and I was interested in. There seems to be whenever I get sick with MS about 15 years ago, um, like there wasn't really much of an advoca advocacy around, particularly from health professionals. You know, you're you're a doctor who specialises in cancer, and over the last five or six years, you know, there's been a lot more medical professionals who have become more open to this sort of lifestyle medicine. But I'm just interested, what, what has been the approach or how have your peers and colleagues received your advocacy um, in, in the plant-based lifestyle medicine sort of vicinity? How has that been re received? Yeah, so I think, you know, we've sort of got two extremes, as you might imagine. Um, but um, on the positive um, side, there's a growing body of health professionals, all who've become sort of members of plant-based health professionals and also have gained their qualifications, like I have in lifestyle medicine, who are looking for a different way of practicing medicine because we recognize that our sort of, you know, sticking plaster approach of pills and um, procedures is not really um, curing anyone. It's keeping people um, unwell, but with managing symptoms and not really improving people's quality of life um, and so really looking for additional tools in our toolbox that perhaps we were not educated upon um, during medical school but since our time at medical school has really become a budgeting specialty of its own um, and so through launching plant-based health professionals and then earlier this year plant-based health online which is an actually a healthcare service offering lifestyle medicine consultations to you know the public um, we, we recognize that more and more people want to join us they want to practice with us and it's sort of well let's just make our, our organization work first and then have you in the sidelines ready when we've got um, loads of patients wanting to um, you know approach their health in a different but um, evidence-based um, way and then there of course you know, people who haven't really recognised the power of lifestyle medicine for, for whatever reason, you know, because our lives are busy as doctors, we become super specialised and really good at very narrow um, set of conditions. Um, and then our education is very much in the allopathic sort of, you know, conventional um, way. And there's very little time and energy spent in, in looking at sort of different approaches um, that stray from the mainstream. And, you know, 
we need we need all aspects of medicine. Um, but I think what is being recognised is that there's more we can do for our patients. And certainly in my world of cancer, we can um, support people live a better, healthier life and longer life, um, even if they've had a diagnosis of cancer by adopting healthy lifestyle habits of which plant-based nutrition is one key factor. Yes, I think from a patient's perspective and someone who has managed and lived with a chronic illness, whenever I started to see people like yourself and Gemma and others and organisations like the Plant-Based Health Professionals UK, it seemed it kind of validated everything that I had done um, because up until that time, it's quite a scary journey being a patient, knowing what to do, especially in the conventional space because, as you know, um, conventional doctors, for the most part, they don't really know a lot about lifestyle medicine and you're always sort of really worried about a patient, well, should I, should I not? You know, it's, it is it is heartwarming to see the work that you guys are doing now and I think you're, you, you certainly are lighting up the, the sector and it's fascinating and brilliant to see. Just on cancer then, right, I, I mean, I'm, I know people and friends and family, we all do, it doesn't escape anyone, but I was looking at some of the stats prior to uh, having this discussion with you and I wanted just to, you know, one in two people, it is estimated, gets cancer in their lifetime. You know, 39.5% of people will be diagnosed with cancer at some point. An incredible stat. One in two women and one in three men. I mean, because it doesn't impact me personally, I never really thought much about how prevalent it is in society. And what I wanted to ask you as, a, as someone, a doctor who's working in the field, like, um, it does seem there's 375,000 new cases every year in the UK, 1,000 every single day. I mean, it does seem to be becoming much more prevalent. Would you comment on that for me first, Yusuri? Yeah, that's, that's really relevant questions and, and statements that you have um, presented there. And I think a lot of people don't realise until they get their cancer diagnosis how prevalent a condition it is. Um, but also, I think a lot of people don't recognise um, that there are many sort of um, actionable and preventable factors that we should be putting into our general um, awareness really early on in, in life. Now, you know, obviously everything I say is caveated by the fact that not, we can't prevent every illness and we certainly can't prevent every cancer diagnosis. And I think, you know, we are learning um, uh, about why the cancer incidence is increasing, but there's definitely a number of factors of which our diet and lifestyle habits definitely pay, play a part. You know, obviously, another reason is because we are living longer and as with age, more, more conditions become um, more common or, or certain cancers become more common. But if we just think about um, the commonest cancers, 50% um, of cancers in general are made up by just lung cancer, colorectal cancer, breast cancer and prostate cancer. Um, and when you think of that group as a whole, um, a large proportion um, of these cancer cases are potentially preventable or at least could be delayed until um, much later in life. And, and most um, uh, cancer organisations, including Cancer Research UK and the World Cancer Research Fund, state that four out of ten cancers um, could be prevented by adopting healthy lifestyle um, behaviours. So that's pretty huge based on the stats that you've already um, quoted. But I, I think what's clear is that when surveys have been um, done, and I've seen a survey conducted in 2019 um, here in the UK, people are just unaware of what those um, uh, lifestyle interventions are that could reduce their, their risk. And 
there's another really relevant point to make as well um, that I don't think people realise is that having an underlying condition, whether it be high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, um, type 2 diabetes, you know, inflammatory bowel disease, these conditions also elevate your um, chances of getting cancer because you probably know there's a shared mechanism of, uh, of the way we develop chronic disease in general. So, you know, it all sort of comes together with inflammation, chronic inflammation leading to an array of chronic conditions. And, you know, so we really should be concentrating on keeping ourselves well and preventing um, what we now consider sort of normal chronic conditions in order to also try and reduce our risk of cancer. Okay, so my, my sort of very um, loose understanding of cancer, what, what is cancer? Abnormal cell division, something I probably picked up many years ago, but could you, could you tidy that up for me in terms of like what is cancer regardless of where it is in your body, what happens? Yeah, no, on a really basic level, it is this um, unregulated abnormal growth of cells, as you say, can occur in any um, body organ um, that has really um, escaped all the regulatory mechanisms of the body, like the immune system, um, that normally keeps these rogue cells in check. Um, and it sort of grows to form um, a clinically apparent problem, whether it be a lump or abnormal bleeding or pain. Um, and it, it continues to grow without any regulation until it causes symptoms and eventually it leaves the original body organ like the bowel and might travel in the blood and in the lymphatic system to other organs. And that's when we call it sort of metastatic disease when it's escaped the control of the original organ. And as you rightly say, um, you know, cancer develops over decades. It's not something that just happened yesterday and became clinically apparent um, with a lump or, or, or pain or so forth. Um, and cancer cells are being created in our body all the time because of what we're being exposed to. So environmental toxins, infections, um, inflammation, um, the food we eat, um, you know, the, the stress we put our bodies into, and our cells can be damaged, um, you know, every minute, every hour, but our body can regulate that. So we have an, an immune system, we have proteins that keep in check these abnormal cells and, and they sort of either stay dormant and don't do anything or they just die off because your normal body mechanisms take care of it. But um, somehow um, just one cell can be given this growth advantage that escapes all these um, mechanisms of control and then it starts growing unregulated. Um, and so uh, there's a there's many points in that journey of that cancer cell where we might be able to intervene we can we can reduce the um, stress that's happening to our cells and even if we've got some damaged cells we can help our body repair those cells so that they don't eventually become a clinically relevant cancer excellent so um just just touching in a little bit further on that so how is it normally detected and how long should people wait if they see something wrong with them, if they feel a lump or they're concerned. So, you know, how is it normally detected and how long should people wait till they yeah. um, go to their GP? Well, I mean, that's a difficult question because we've got, you know, hundreds of different cancers. Just in haematology, we've got over 100 different cancers. So it really depends on their body site and the organ affected but you know if we stick with the common cancers and um, lung cancer for example chronic cough chest pain coughing up blood bowel cancer change in bowel habit uh, whether that be diarrhea or constipation abdominal pain blood in the stool um, which is a, a way of screening for bowel cancer 
breast cancer usually presents as a lump, you know, that a woman um, can actually feel. Um, and prostate cancer, when it grows um, uh, and enlarges the prostate, can cause difficulty with passing urine, you know, hesitancy, um, you know, a stream that doesn't flow. Um, and, and any of these sort of um, uh, alarming kind of cancer-related symptoms should be acted on straight away. Um, one shouldn't wait if, if, if we're worried, but Cancer Research UK has some amazing information online if people are worried about certain symptoms and one, wonder if they should seek um, help for that. We've got great charitable support here in the UK to, mm. to guide people on the right thing to do. One of the first books I read um, in my healing journey uh, was the China study by Dr. Colin Campbell and I've then spent the last 20 odd years or 15 years trying to figure out Dr. Campbell and Esalen Caldwell and I've, I've, I've sort of arrived at a position that they're men of integrity and I love their work but I was wondering then have we worked out has the science and the medical community figured out what the main causes are of cancer and if they have what are they? Yeah, again, a really big um, question, and there's no one answer to that question. Um, but I guess it's always useful to concentrate on um, causes that we can take action upon, because there's so many uh, factors out there that we don't have control over. Um, so we certainly know what lifestyle factors um, could help present, prevent four out of 10 cancers. So 40% of cancers could be prevented if we um, stop smoking. So that's still sadly the number one cause of cancer around the world is tobacco smoking. If we all um, consumed more fruits and vegetables and fiber, um, if we all undertook regular physical activity, um, if we all kept a healthy weight, because I think people don't realise that carrying too much weight is, is now the second commonest cause of cancer, second only to tobacco smoking. If we stopped drinking alcohol, because alcohol is a group one carcinogen after all, um, and um, if we had better safe exposure to the sun, so obviously too much sun and getting sunburnt is, is a risk factor. So those are the kind of main um, sort of lifestyle related um, factors and obviously I'm quite interested in, in the nutrition side um, and, and have a passion for promoting healthy plant-based nutrition because we know that um, a diet that's associated with the lowest risk of cancer is one that is um, centered around fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts and seeds and mainly water for thirst. If you enjoy tea and coffee, they can have some helpful properties. So I don't have any problem with that as long as they're not laden with loads of cream, dairy and sugar. Um, and, you know, it's all those foods together that have been shown to lower your risk of cancer when it comes to diet. None of the other foods that we eat um, are anti-cancer. In fact, they may be promoting cancer. So anything you do outside of the healthy plant foods like Processed red meats, for example, um, are a direct cause of colorectal cancer, causing around five and a half thousand cases of colorectal cancer in the UK. So that's about 13% of colorectal cancers are caused by eating processed red meat. If you add in red meat as well, that's 20% of um, colorectal cancers. And just taking a sort of digression there, you know, if we have over 40,000 cases of colorectal cancer a year, if you cut that um, by 20% just by removing red and processed meat from the diet, that's pretty remarkable. 
Um, and, you know, for example, also dairy milk increases the risk of prostate cancer. Every 400 grams a day you consume of dairy milk, um, you increase your risk by about sort of um, 5% or, or, or so. Um, and so all these sort of associations point to um, foods that can promote cancer, but we have a vast amount of information about the foods that prevent cancer because they're full of these anti-cancer compounds, they're full of fiber, they're full of um, nutrients that we know regulate the immune system, they feed the gut microbiome, which is also essential for our immune system to recognize these cancer cells. Um, and so, you know, the best thing we can do is obviously concentrate our diet around these healthy plant foods. The evidence is so strong that it's in all the clinical guidelines, you know, eat a diet that's full of fruits, vegetables, whole grains and beans. Excellent stuff. So can I just go back on one of the things you said, can we, can we clarify it then? So eating processed meat and dairy products do cause cancer. That's a fact. Well, um, so I think for processed red meat, that is a fact. That's the a WHO fact. have um, confirmed that processed red meat is a group one carcinogen and the same group as tobacco smoking, asbestos, alcohol, for example. Obviously, the the, the absolute risks are different, you know, um, uh, but it certainly does um, cause colorectal cancer and increases the risk of other cancers such as prostate cancer, breast cancer, pancreatic okay. cancer, for example. Okay. Dairy is not such a causal association, um, but um, there is a trend to showing that people who consume the most dairy, certainly in the male context, um, have an increased risk of prostate cancer. Um, and, you know, I think there's some unanswered questions there, but we know that dairy is not required in, in the diet. And, and you can make a better choice. So, for example, soya foods, soya milk, have been associated with reduced risk of a number of cancers, including prostate cancer and breast cancer. So it's all about weighing up risks and benefits and knowing which ones are better. Um, it's not to say if you had, uh, you know, a glass of milk on one day a week or a small amount of cheese, you know, now and again, you'd do any harm. But it's about making sure you make the best choices that you can every moment you can. So two things. Um, if you explain what is a, a group one, what is a carcinogen? Explain what a carcinogen is. And then secondly, my mum would anecdotally say to me the odd time, oh, soya milk is, is related to prostate cancer. Is that... Uh, true, no? Is that not anywhere near the Richter scale? Yeah, well, um, sorry to have used language that may not be familiar, but carcinogen just means something that causes cancer. So yeah. we're most familiar with um, things like tobacco or radiation or asbestos. Um, so a substance that is known to cause cancer in humans. Um, and when it's definite, it's a group one carcinogen. When it's probable, it's group two. And if it's less certain, then, you know, it's lower down in the grouping. Um, and, and the levels of evidence are usually assessed by the WHO, who then provide that classification. Um, there is no harm at all associated with consuming minimally processed soya foods and milk. Quite the opposite. Um, all the evidence we have to date in humans um, shows that um, adding soya to your diet, even at an early age in childhood, leads to lower rates of cancer in later life. So, for example, children that consume soya um, products such as tofu and soy milk and so forth have a reduced risk of breast cancer later in life. Um, I think some of the confusion does come from the animal studies, but we, we know that 
you can't translate animal studies into humans and we've been caught out with that over and over again. So we have a large body of evidence that supports the consumption of healthy soya foods um, for humans. Okay, there you go, Mum. I was trying to tell you, but you wouldn't listen to me. Um, Can I ask you about alcohol and cancer? Um, You know, I I just think alcohol is um, a really damaging drug anyway. Um, And is there any connection between alcohol use and cancer? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think people don't recognize that or they might recognize it, but then sort of convince themselves that it's okay um, to continue consuming. So again, um, alcohol is a group one carcinogen. We've known this for ages. It causes cancer. Globally, it causes about five to six percent of cancer. So one out of 20 cancers are caused by alcohol. And that statistic is rising and has been recognized as a a genuine problem by various cancer societies around the world. So much so that, for example, the the American Society of Cancer, the American Society of Clinical Oncology wrote a position statement a couple of years back stating the facts on alcohol. Um, And, you know, there's like, like with any toxic substance, there is a dose effect um and you know the more you consume of something the the worse the the or the higher the risk of causing an illness Mm -hmm. but when it comes to alcohol there is no safe limit um you know zero is the healthiest amount of alcohol to consume when it comes to cancer prevention and even one measure of alcohol um consumed in a day can elevate a woman's risk of breast cancer for example um, so, so I think we need to be clear on the messaging, and we're we're, we're not on the medical side. We're not um, clear, and even in policy, government policy, we're really not clear on that messaging. And um, because at the end of the day, alcohol damages your DNA. It allows other toxic substances to get in more easily to 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 cells. So, for example, if you smoke and drink, that's doubly worse. It's not just additive; it's synergistically um, worse. Um, alcohol, as you might imagine, sort of alters the um, uh, makeup of the gut microbiome. You know, we use alcohol on our hands to get rid of bacteria. Well, you know, you're putting it into your body. You're going to affect the the gut microbiome. We know it affects gene expression, you know, so how the genes function. Um, So there's a multitude of reasons why um, we we think alcohol causes cancer, but there is no doubt that it does. Okay, excellent. Um... Nearly there with the questions, but I one of the reasons why I decided to uh, transition to a plant-based diet was because I knew and I sort of figured out that it's uh, in terms of reducing inflammation, it was the most anti-inflammatory diet. And for someone living with a neurological condition, I thought that was a good idea. Um, I just wanted to ask, what role does inflammation then play in cancer? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, we, we know for certain that inflammation is part of the reason um, why we develop um, cancer. And that's not the sort of uh, you know acute protective inflammation that we get when we might knock our elbow or our knee and it becomes red and inflamed because that's the body's protective mechanism. But we're talking about that chronic um, inflammation that goes um, unnoticed essentially, um, but is present for sort of you know years or decades that is damaging our cells and, and DNA. Um, and you know, for if we just took, um, for example, um, the ex- the example of carrying too much weight. So if you're overweight or obese, um, we we sort of think of those fat cells under our skin as just sitting there and maybe looking unsightly, but they're not doing anything. But they really are. So these fat cells um, secrete 
cytokines and chemicals and proteins that then cause inflammation. And that inflammation um, can damage the cells and DNA and proteins and stop them functioning properly. Um, and it can also affect the way our genes um, manifest. You know, we might be born with a set of genes, but how they function really is, is a product of what we expose our body to. Um, so that all plays a, a part. And, and often we are able to control that chronic inflammation because we should be nourishing our bodies with the right healthy lifestyle habits. So we should be dampening down that inflammation to keep that damage to a minimum by eating foods that are full of anti-inflammatory compounds. As you say, those are the healthy, colorful, brightly um, colorful uh, fruits and vegetables and whole grains and beans and legumes and so forth. Um, it's things like um, regular physical activity dampens down inflammation. It's about getting restorative adequate sleep it dampens down inflammation it's about cause keeping psychological stress at bay to levels that are associated with better health mm -hmm. so all of these healthy lifestyle factors have been shown individually and together to reduce the level of infl inflammation and that clearly is one of the key mechanisms by which um, cancer can be um, at least you know prevented or, or delayed uh, um, but as you say inflammation pays a part in every single illness we deal with cardiovascular disease autoimmune conditions yeah. like multiple sclerosis inflammatory bowel disease type 2 diabetes fantastic so finally then vitamin d is something i've been looking at for 10 odd years looking at different studies reading books all kinds of things I'm just totally convinced um, that it has helped me. I, I, I supplement vitamin D 8,000 IU every day. My kids are 8 and 10. They supplement every day. My parents, anybody close to me probably supplements because they're sick of listening to me um, uh, advise them to. But what about vitamin D then and supplementation and the benefit of that to prevent a cancer diagnosis or even to help if, if, if you're living with cancer? Yeah, no, that's a really relevant um, question. Vitamin D has a key role to play in so many of our um, bodily functions, our immune system, our bone health, um, you know, just the functioning of uh, so many genes and proteins. And so it is crucial. Um, and this is kind of where um, most of my, my advice will differ from the bulk of my advice about supplementation. Um, so, you know, usually we try and get all our nutrients from food and by eating a healthy diet, we want to get our vitamins and minerals, but vitamin D is, a, is difficult to get from the diet because predominantly we should be getting it from the sun and for obvious reasons, we're not having adequate um, sun exposure. Um, so the connection with vitamin D and cancer um, mainly comes with its impact on um, uh, the risk of dying from cancer. So it's not been shown very robustly to prevent cancer, but what seems to be more clear is that if you have a cancer diagnosis, it's definitely beneficial to make sure your vitamin D level is adequate and in the normal range and to get it up to the normal range by supplementing um, with, an, uh, with an appropriate dose. And so I do personally measure vitamin D levels in all my patients and then prescribe um, uh, a supplement for the majority of people sadly that come with a low vitamin D because um, most people still don't realize that uh, regardless of diet pattern certainly in the winter months in the UK we all need to be supplementing and you know depending on your lifestyle and exposure to the sun um, it might be all year round um, so yeah I think it's really important it's been shown to reduce your risk of dying from cancer and so I do measure it in all my patients and what dose do you recommend you can't really overdose of vitamin D, is that correct, really? 
Well, the the um, upper limit of tolerated dose is four thousand international units. Right. Okay. Um, so it you know most people are not going to be on that. So it sort of depends on the level. But are you for people who are, don't have uh, an adequate level when I measure it, I definitely start in the range of one to two thousand. You know, probably two thousand, okay. um, to get them up to normal range, and then you can drop down a bit lower or, or not take it on every day if you're just doing a maintenance dose. I think the UK recommendations, or from Public Health England certainly, uh, of just taking sort of two hundred international units, yeah. um, is sort of based or based um, on you know if you had enough levels and you're just keeping it going. But I think if you're deficient, you do need to top it up to a higher level. Okay, so finally, congratulations, 20th of January. Your new book is coming out. I'm looking forward to reading a copy and reviewing it. Eating plant-based scientific answers to your nutritional guidelines. You've co-wrote this with your sister, Dr. Sahara Kassam. Are you excited about that? Why did you write the book? Yeah, really excited. It still feels odd to think that I've written a book, but you've been there and done that, so you kind of know it already. But yeah, it's it's been a really nice opportunity to put together our shared learning and experience over you know the best part of a decade um, as it relates to health. Um, so um, you know we've we've talked about all these sort of connections today between diet and and um, cancer and also other lifestyle habits. And I think these are the common questions that people are asking myself and my sister, who's also a cancer doctor in Canada, in our clinical practice. Um, and when we first became vegan and adopted a plant-based diet, we read a book called Eat Like You Care, which was this sort of Q&A style book um, that answered all those questions about veganism um, and why, you know, as a moral baseline, we should be adopting um, veganism as a lifestyle choice. Um, And so we thought, well, there isn't that sort of Q&A form of book for plant-based nutrition. And, you know, as um, scientists and doctors, we wanted to put together the evidence in a sort of really concise and usable format. Um, So there's, you know, 14 chapters, you know, um, talking about different aspects of diet. So we start with, you know, meat and dairy and eggs and fish and what do the science say and all all the sort of questions that you get asked about these foods. And then we move on to the plant foods and fruits and vegetables and nuts and, and seeds and what have you. And it, you know, even when we know that fruits and vegetables are healthy, people wonder, well, can you eat too much fruit? Is there too much sugar in it? You know, will it cause diabetes? You know, all these sort of myths that uh, are prevalent uh, and are propagated by people who want you to make the wrong choices at the end of the day. So we've put it together in one sort of hopefully concise, um, accessible book um, uh, that, that also has, uh, you know, thousands of references in case people are wondering whether we have stuck to the science. And it concludes by... Um, uh, having a, a chapter on the broader impacts of our diet choices, because we can no longer just think about diet as in, impacting our personal health. It has, it is having a huge impact on planetary health, um, and you know the climate and ecological crisis um, needs to be. Um, dealt with and addressing our food and our food system is also crucial and and, you know even that topic is full of myths even though the science is is clear so really hope we made a valuable contribution um, to individuals who are looking to transition to a plant-based diet 
or health professionals who are looking to support their patients because as you say that education is not widely disseminated in my circles of, of um, you know doctors and nurses um, and yeah hope it's going to be useful and valuable it can be read in a linear fashion or you can just delve into it and get the answer to the question that you've been um, you know thinking about and not found a, a, an evidence-based answer. Fantastic. Your passion is contagious. It's so inspiring to listen to a medical doctor in 2021-2022 talk about lifestyle medicine, plant-based nutrition. You're very active on social media. Where is the best place to find you, Shireen? Yeah, so we're, we're everywhere. So um, uh, on Facebook, it's plant-based health professionals. Well, in fact, I think everywhere it's plant-based health professionals, certainly Instagram, plant-based health professionals. On Twitter, it's plant-based HPUK. Um, and um, you can contact us through our website, which is plantbasedhealthprofessionals.com. Um, and if you're looking to reach out to a like-minded health professional for medical advice on a one-to-one or a group basis we have plant-based health online that is a cqc regulated healthcare service that can support you to live a healthier and better life and that's plantbasedhealthonline.com so whenever i started the podcast i had three goals it was to inform educate and inspire and i think you've just done that in 33 minutes i want to thank you for that because you are a superstar doctor sometimes maybe you don't really understand how important and how empowering your own work is for people like us just people normal people patients I would commend you on that and I want to really encourage you and all of your medical people around you who are doing this um, to keep going. I just think it's so important and I think people are very receptive to a lot of what you're saying now, which is heartwarming for me. So thank you very much, Shireen. That's been amazing. Oh, thank you, Connor, and thank you for your kind words and it's really motivating for me to hear. So very great. Hey everyone, welcome back. I don't know about you, but I really enjoyed speaking to Dr. Kassam earlier this week about cancer, which is really actually a very difficult subject to talk about on a podcast. And probably if you're listening to this and you've suffered directly from this awful disease, or maybe you have lost someone in your family through this awful disease, I hope that we approached the subject matter in a sensitive way, in an empathetic way, and I hope it comes across, I really do hope it comes across well, because that's how I wanted the conversation to come across. But I think some of the statistics that we can find out now that are actually true, which is kind of concerning, you know, one in two people will get cancer in their lifetime, one in two women and one in three men. You know, the three main cancers out there are breast, lung and colon cancer. And they account for 50% of the total number of cancer diagnoses every year. 375,000 new cancer cases every year is, it's astonishing really. And I think the really interesting thing, I mean, one of the things I wanted to do with this conversation and this episode was to try and raise awareness about cancer the nastiness of cancer and all of the bad stuff, which hopefully we've we've put out there now. But actually, one of the most startling things that I got from this conversation myself was that four out of 10 cancers are preventable. And we can prevent these cancers 
by simply changing our lifestyles. Now I say simply and I, I don't mean to water that down because I know that it is, is extremely difficult for any of us to change our lifestyles. But one of the reasons why I'm passionate about plant-based nutrition, one of the reasons why I post on social media is to try and encourage everyone to give this lifestyle a go. The question you have to ask yourselves is, do I want to change? Do I need to change? And the thing that I've learned about life is you can't force people to do anything. It's impossible. It has to come from within. So many people ask me about the Ironmans. I've done eight Ironman triathlons now. And it's difficult. But it's not impossible. But I think the reason why I've been able to achieve eight Ironman medals is because I really want to do it. I think the reason why I've been able to sustain and maintain a plant-based diet for nearly six years now, five years actually, five and a half years, is because I really want to do it. And the reason why I really want to live and embrace lifestyle medicine is because of being sick. I spent years being really ill, really down, and I'd lost all hope. And I would admit that it is probably an easier place to come from if you've been in that position. But what I would say to anybody who's feeling okay at the moment, or maybe you're not feeling okay, maybe you're a bit tired and you're a bit concerned, maybe you're carrying too much weight or you just want to change, what I would encourage you to do is just simply change. Change direction, change tomorrow. Have a go at this lifestyle. Try it for a week, four weeks, three months. I'm telling you it's worth it. It's the best decision, it's the best investment that I have ever made. I hope this conversation helps one person. I hope it helps people change direction. If it has, I would love to hear from you. I'm getting more emails, I'm getting more correspondence. You can get me at connor at connordevine.com. If you know someone you think would benefit from listening to the podcast, just share the podcast with them. And if you've any other feedback, I would love to hear from you. Outside of that, this is the last podcast of 2021. I think it's been a really difficult year for everyone. And if you're still finding things difficult, I think it's important to hold on to that idea that things can improve, they will improve. But the final thing I'll say that the only The people that I know who are doing well at life, who are healthy, who are happy, appear to be happy, who appear to be achieving some level of success, whatever that means. All of those people who fit that narrative are some of the hardest workers I know. They all work incredibly hard. And the big thing that I've learned out of life is you get nothing for standing still. It comes with hard work. So I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. I hope you get some value from it. I hope it's maybe helped you understand illness, disease, the benefits of lifestyle nutrition, of plant-based nutrition. All of the things we can do to prevent illness and achieve happiness and longevity. That's all from me. 
look after each other and yourself. Until next time. Come my name and I'll be there Over the hill.